Welcome to Into the Colaverse, a podcast that takes us on the unique journeys of faculty in the College of Liberal Arts at UT Austin. Join me, your host, Frederick Luis Aldama, as we learn of the many ways that our faculty and their cutting-edge work is transforming the world today. It is my absolute pleasure to have Josiana Arroyo here with me today for our Into the Colaverse podcast. Josiana is Professor of Latin American and Caribbean Literatures and Cultures in the Departments of Spanish and Portuguese, as well as African and African Diaspora Studies. She's also the author of several groundbreaking books, including Writing Secrecy in Caribbean Freemasonry and the forthcoming Caribe 2.0, New Media, Globalization, and the Afterlives of Disaster. Welcome, Josiana. Thank you for having me, Fred. So wonderful to see you. And, and you know, now you're my colleague. So wonderful. I know. Yeah. Our, our, our collaboration started before all of that. And now we get to Excellent. be colleagues. I'm so excited. Yes. Um, so tell me, uh, Josiana, let's... Yeah. Dig a little bit back, and how how is it that you're kind of where you are, looking kind of back from where you are to where you've come from? Was there something in the water that you were drinking that was like, I am going to be a scholar of kind of Caribbean intellectual histories, um, decolonial practices? Yeah, tell us about your origin story and your journey. Yes. Um, so I started, um, well, first of all, I think uh, I, I could repeat with Michelle Froltrio that history sat at the dinner table in my house, uh, particularly Puerto Rican history. Uh, my dad uh, was a student of history. He didn't study history at the end, but he was an aficionado. So we spoke about Caribbean histories, particularly Puerto Rican, but mostly the interrelations uh, of Caribbean histories. Um, the stories of the Spanish Caribbean, Cuba, Puerto Rico, uh, the Dominican Republic uh, were shared constantly, uh, but also um, as I move in, um, I mean, I was an avid reader uh, since I was you know, little, um, and history and literature became kind of like my core subjects growing up. Um, I was always interested also in performance studies. So when I graduated uh, my senior year, I, I hesitated and I was like, probably I will study drama and not literature, but then literature won. And this is how I started uh, working uh, with uh, Caribbean literature and cultures. I graduated from the University of Puerto Rico, and then I moved uh, to pursue graduate studies at the University of California at Berkeley, uh, where I graduated from in 1998. Uh, I was really, really lucky to be at Berkeley uh, with a core of Caribbean scholars and also African and African diaspora scholars like Bebe Clark and Barbara Christian uh, and many others. Uh, who actually uh, solidified, uh, meaning my interest in uh, in Caribbean, but also Black studies, which is uh, one of the core uh, areas that I study. Um, I also uh, work with Jose David Saldivar uh, and many other Latino studies scholars uh, and uh, faced 
you know, the, the realities of, of Latinidad as I moved to California. Um, a great place to be in, uh, Berkeley in the 90s. Um, I mean, um, Ferguson culture, uh, Latinx uh, students, uh, which shared my background. Uh, and then I realized that um, we have more commonalities, right? As a first generation Puerto Rican in the Bay, and then I decided to stay in the United States as a scholar. Um, I realized that Latinidad and the conversations among Latinidad and Caribbean studies, uh, as well as blackness, were, were kind of central to what I did. Uh, my first job was at the University of Michigan Ann Arbor, and and then uh, after I was promoted, I moved to the University of Texas at Austin, where I've been since, um, and where I became a full professor. So exciting to be yes. your colleague, the same place, same institution. Josiana, tell me, were there um, struggles? obstacles um, overcome along your journey, your scholarship. I mean, putting, um, you know, Black studies together, especially, um, you know, by the way, of course, Barbara Christian uh, had a huge um, print on me as well. Oh, yeah. Um, my goodness. And, you know, bring Black, Black studies, Caribbean studies uh, together with, you know, Latinx, Latino studies as you were you know, taking your journey through not just your PhD, but also in your, your first books? Yes. Yes. It was, it was really interesting because it was challenging. Um, as you remember very well in the nineties, uh, there was, there were a lot of cross um, cross and transnational conversations happening, uh, in, in California, particularly in the UC Berkeley campus. Uh, but, uh, I remember, uh, being confronted not only by certain colleagues, uh, uh, people in my cohort, but also professors uh, who told me, what are you doing? I mean, why are you uh, insisting in, in, in working with, with uh, Blackness uh, and Latinidad? Uh, what, what is happening in, in the Spanish Caribbean that needs to be uh, centered around Blackness and why it's important uh, for, for Latinos, right? For first, second, and third generation. Um, and even I remember a really good friend, uh, Brazilian, uh, I, I completed, I had many, many scholarships. I was very well supported at Berkeley uh, uh, with scholarships uh, from many centers. And in one of the scholarships, I remember I did a cycle of cinema in which I included uh, Northeast Brazil uh, as part of the group of, of Black Studies films that we were watching, right? Um, and she was like, the Brazilian North is, doesn't have anything to do with the Caribbean, right? Um, and at those moments, I mean, I realized that I didn't have the language to speak about Afro-diasporas, uh, but I was already doing uh, a lot of that transnational work uh, with my insights. So uh, I always encourage my students, uh, even today, uh, to kind of like go through this uncomfortable questions um, and kind of like delve into that niche uh, because usually this is where a lot of the good insights come out. Um, as I graduated and I finished my dissertation uh, that became my first book, Travestismo Culturales, um, I started reading Schomburg. So I, I, I always think uh, one of these, and I guess that happens to you too, one of these lucky scholars that 
as it's as as you finish one project, you're already like reading for the other. They they kind of the conversation continues, but with different questions. So um, I found uh, the writings of Schomburg in the Berkeley Library, um, and I realized, wow, you know, like there's there's more there's more that we could do uh, with Arthur Schomburg. Um, and uh, precisely Arthur, Arthur Schomburg, his work, I mean, seeds precisely in the conversation between Afro-Latinidad and, you know, and what we call Afro-Latinos today and Caribbean migrations. Um, so the first chapter that came from writing secrecy was uh, the one I dedicated to Schomburg um, and Freemasonry. And then the others uh, developed from that. Wow, such a such a rich, exciting, and yet challenging uh, journey, Josiana. You know, it's interesting because I know that you've done work on Fernando Ortiz. And, you know, the Cuban counterpoint was, for me, it's still one of the most, I would say, but maybe I'm wrong, kind of undervalued uh, works, right? Especially when it comes to his very deep understanding of how you know Cubanidad and convergence and emergence happened with black mestizo and indigenous cultures to make a third culture um, but maybe I'm getting it wrong no no I think I think you have a point um Fernando Ortiz I, I was really lucky that um in the 90s there was a revival of Ortiz and as you know as you were a uh, part of that group that uh, started reading the, the Cuban counterpoint. Um, it was translated as well uh, a couple of years later in the only edition. Um, I think it's a, an edition from Duke University Press. Uh, so transculturation became kind of the core uh, of, of many, uh, many discussions uh, among, among us, particularly uh, Caribbean and Latino and Latinx scholars uh, that were seeking uh, an understanding of what happens with culture and power, right? Uh, what happens with our cultures that are mixed cultures, uh, but at the same time uh, gain and lose, right? In the dynamics of power and in the struggles of power in society. So um, Ortiz gave us uh, in many ways uh, a path uh, to understand that not everything <laughs> is assimilation, right? Uh, that our cultures and our, our languages, uh, our, our our inputs, our bodies, right, uh, are always in these phases of of of, of struggle. Uh, these dynamics of power uh, that are not necessarily assimilated by mainstream culture. So this is, uh, I believe. Uh, what Fernando Ortiz gave to me. Uh, I work, um, I continue working with uh, with Ortiz later on. Um, and I also follow the path of, of Frances Aparicio and Susana Chavez Silverman and many others who have used uh, transculturation uh, for Latino and Latina and Latinx uh, studies. Um, nowadays, right, uh, my colleague Lawrence LaFountain Stocks has this wonderful book called translocas, right? When he's using transculturation, but also the trans metaphor uh, to understand uh, sexuality and drug cultures in the Caribbean. And I think this is all uh, in part, I mean, all this research 
is a re is a rethinking of Ortiz. I mean, uh, many Cuban scholars, uh, contemporary scholars, have criticized, including myself. Uh, I'm I'm a little harsh on Ortiz, particularly in his views of blackness. Uh, but as you say, um, he is uh, the first uh, the first scholar. I mean, anthropologist uh, in Cuba that offers a name uh, to to the cultural. Uh, interaction, right, among whites, blacks, um, and indigenous cultures in the country. Oh, my goodness. I, Josiana, so much going on in my brain right now, as you can imagine. <laughs> but let me, let, me, let me take us to Caribes 2.0. And I, I want, God, I'm so excited for, for this book, as you know. Thank um, you. But let me ask you two points here, just um, that our audience will have a mo most likely as a reference. One is Super Bowl 2020. And the other one is Despacito with Justin Bieber, um, right? Um, uh, 2017. And I know you talk about both, but tell me, Josiana, like what, what are these two kind of pop cultural moments showing us? Yeah. What are they showing? What, what would we learn? What can we learn from these two instances of pop culture? Yes. Well, let me start with the Despacito moment and since it's 2017 and then we move to the Super Bowl uh, 2020 moment with, with Jennifer Lopez and Shakira. Um, I think uh, Despacito, uh, was, uh, Despacito was a song, uh, as you know, that, that was played for uh, years, I will say like a year or so uh, in the Spanish charts right, in, in the popular Spanish charts and radio in Spanish, right? Um, and it was already popular. Um, and then Justin Bieber, Justin Bieber did the phrasing uh, in English, and then the song became uh, actually more popular, uh, particularly with uh, English uh, audiences. Um, what is really interesting about Despacito is that um, it not only has become uh, and, and I don't know if it's the one now, uh, but up until Bad Bunny's <laughs> uh, recent album, Despacito was the most mainstream uh, video and song uh, in the history of YouTube. Uh, it had billions and billions of, of viewers, right? Um, and it was filmed in Puerto Rico um, for Latinos who understand Spanish or who speak Spanish as a first language. It's, it's really easy to understand the kind of like double entendre in the song, right? It's a song about lovemaking and sexuality, a man who seduces a woman and takes her to the beach um, and, and requests uh, an erotic encounter that goes a little slow, uh, slowly, despacito, right? Um, but what is interesting is that the video um, made the song more popular, not only the phrasing by Bieber, and this is an argument that Petra Rivera Ridal makes like really strongly on her analysis of Despacito, right? She said the song was already popular uh, in, in, in Spanish. So it was the Latino and Spanish audience that made the song popular. And then with Bieber's phrasing, it became uh, bigger, right? Uh, but what is really interesting is that the video uh, became then kind of like a hit, 
right? And it, it was filmed in La Perla in San Juan, Puerto Rico. Uh, La Perla is a barrio uh, in old San Juan, um, is, is working class. Uh, it's pretty close to the entrance of the bay. So it's around the, the kind of like the most historical uh, castle, uh, the castles and the murallas uh, area. Uh, but um, what is kind of interesting is that uh, the video <laughs> made La Perla even more popular for tourists. So uh, La Perla residents started making Despacito tours uh, to kind of like bring tourists, uh, particularly American tourists, but also tourists around the world, a view or work of where the, um, of where um, the video was filmed. So this is an interesting like turn of events. Um, everything got uh, kind of like more complicated as Hurricane Maria hit the island in 2017 and that same community got really, really affected um, as many communities uh, on the island. Uh, but um, that was the standing, right, of, of Despacito and the popularity of, of an erotic song right, that in many ways uh, attracted tourists uh, into the island. Um, so with the 2020 Super Bowl, <laughs> it's a different story. Um, as you may know, uh, there, was, uh, there were many Black entertainers that were invited uh, into the Super Bowl, um, but uh, many uh, say no, right? They were uh, supporting uh, Colin Kaepernick's uh, um, um, kind of like uh, protest uh, and Black Lives Matters supporters, um, and of course uh, criticizing Trump's uh, presidency and the treatment of of not only Blacks but also Latinos and Latinx uh, children uh, that were coming through the border. Um, but two Latina, uh, very uh, popular actress, you know, uh, singers, right? Shakira and J-Lo accepted the challenge and they were criticized. I don't know if you remember, but Twitter went completely crazy. Uh, oh my, you know, this is your typical, you know, Latino, you know, uh, brainwash, you know, performer who's not supporting anything that's happening with, with, uh, black uh, Black America, et cetera, et cetera. But the big surprise was that the mid show was specifically a critique, a very strong, strong critique of uh, Trump policies at the border. I don't know if you remember, but there was this, um, this amazing performance by the two of them. And then at the end of the performance, they had this cages uh, in the middle of the stadium, right, uh, where kids uh, were held in. Uh, they came out of the cages and they started singing, uh, let's get loud, right? Uh, so it was a kind of like very, very forceful critique uh, to the Trump administration and everyone, <laughs> everyone watched it uh, from either their TV or from the stadium. It was a very watched show. So, um, the critique that came afterward uh, was that that it was uh, too political. And I don't know if you remember, uh, but there were also a lot of critiques of the way Jennifer Lopez and Shakira were dancing uh, for the cameras. 
Uh, once again, right, uh, we cannot forget that Shakira is from Barranquilla, the Colombian Caribbean, and J-Lo is, is from the Bronx, uh, a, a daughter of Puerto Rican parents. Um, and once again, kind of like the Latino Caribbean collusion kind of like became an issue right through the performance, but specifically through uh, their own racialized bodies, right? Um, it was interesting also that Shakira um, made, I mean, of course, her, her very um, Arabic uh, movements uh, as well uh, through the performance. So I think those two moments uh, marked uh, in many ways uh, what I call in, in Caribe's 2.0 uh, convergence culture, right? Um, we see uh, that what Caribbean media publics, but also U.S.-based Caribbean, Latinx, and, and other populations are watching uh, today um, are kind of these intersectionalities, right, um, that merge uh, not only televisual, but also a pretty strong uh, social critique um, and also uh, kind of like this very strong uh, performing bodies, right? And this, of course, are two popular artists. Uh, but in the book, I, I do mix uh, popular culture uh, and performers like Shakira, J-Lo. I speak also of Niurka Marcos, who is a crossover Cuban artist who has been really successful in Mexico. Um, and it's kind of like a Latinx in many ways icon, right? Uh, but also I discuss blackface, brownface, um, the uses of blackface and brownface in comedy. Um, I, I also discuss uh, performers like Lehuan James, uh, for example, who are more uh, in Instagram and, and, uh, and other platforms kind of like uh, working uh, with media vlogging. Um, and I also look at cartoons uh, from, um, from Puerto Rican, uh, Puerto Rican cartoonist Angeli Garcia, among many other uh, kind of like uh, texts, right? Uh, texts uh, that are kind of coming together through convergence media, right? Um, and this is what we access. We look at film, we look at television, we look at the internet, particularly YouTube and Facebook, right? Facebook for our generation, TikTok for others. Uh, but then um, this is where all the discussions on race, gender, sexuality, but also this is where politics uh, in many ways uh, and the racialized body in many ways are, are, are very present. Wow, you actually, Josiana, kind of answered my my wrap up question, which was, you know, what can we take from your research into, you know, the real world to enrich our understanding, not just of, say, the way the mainstream constantly wants to frame us in ways that myth misrepresent and simplify and essentialize, but also you know, you also push really hard too on colorism in our own communities, right? Um, but what, for our audience now, social media, digital platforms, the Super Bowl, film, literature, 
Garibes 2.0, your work that's kind of come behind that and informed that, what would be your kind of ask for us to have a takeaway? What's the takeaway for us? And yeah. So the takeaway is that um, even though Latinx and Black cultures in in Caribbean Black cultures uh, appear to be kind of strong performing cultures, right, Uh, based and centered on the body, um, these are cultures who don't necessarily live in uh, in this continuous party, right? (laughs) So what I really want to get across is that along with these performances, along with this uh, pretty strong presence uh, that we could see, particularly in in popular culture, but um, specifically in these new emerging bloggers and artists uh, and influencers, um, there's a lot of of tension, right? Um, And the tension uh, is centered on, on the violences of race, uh, the commodification of bodies and objects, uh, the kind of like uh, misrepresentation of our communities. Um, what is really interesting in many of these uh, bloggers is that they b- use both English and Spanish. So the interest of translating for others is not there anymore because there's a public that understands what they're saying, right? Um, but um, at the same time, um, we are, uh, even though uh, many of these publics and these performances look kind of successful, quote unquote, um, we are living, um, we are living and in, in in very dire and neo and you know and 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 violent neoliberal times, right? Uh, where the ciphers of of death. Uh, where racial violence is is extremely present, uh, where social austerity uh, comes to all all of our countries. I mean, not only uh, in in the islands, right? Uh, Puerto Rico is going through this uh, terrible social austerity uh, modes right now. Uh, There's a crisis uh, after Maria, right? Uh, uh, With the national disasters, the national disaster, right? Um, uh, but also uh, Latino Latino and Latinx cultures and Black cultures suffer, right? Uh, police brutality, uh, they are victims of the necropolitical state. Uh, one of my chapters uh, and one of the most important ones and that I published um, uh, first uh, in the book was the one about um, the non-traditional funerals in Puerto Rico, right? Uh, this this kind of like uh, extreme embalming uh, bodies uh, that represent um, not only uh, bodies that are engaging uh, with with a type of neoliberal script in a way, uh, but also a kind of way of standing uh, in front of the crisis. So I think uh, our communities, uh, and we see this, right, uh, 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 with what has been happening, I mean, particularly uh, recently um, with, uh, with schools, right, with, with the shooting at Uvalde uh, and many others, our communities are in pain. 
Um, so what, what is kind of like the message of the book is, is kind of like seeing both sides of both sides of the coin, right? Uh, understanding that that uh, popular culture, convergence, media culture uh, is about music, is about performance, it's, it's about uh, moving and lively bodies. But we need to see all of this dynamics, all of this magic of our cultures uh, in the context, right, of the uh, expediency of the body uh, and uh, the violence, the daily lives and the violence of daily lives uh, that happens uh, in the United States uh, as first, second, third generations, but also uh, in uh in the in the archipelago in the caribbean archipelago mm. yes <laughs> yeah absolutely to celebrate but at the same time to celebrate affirm but with our eyes wide open and critically wide open right yes. josiana yes um gosh josiana arroyo thank you so much for sharing a little bit of your journey with me here yes and you're welcome you're welcome and and let's talk more Okay. Talking and dialoguing. Yes. Into the Colaverse is produced by the University of Texas at Austin's College of Liberal Arts. Sound engineering by the Liberal Arts Instructional Technology Services. You can find Into the Colaverse podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Thanks for listening and see you next time. <laughs>